Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1, page 793. The Bible's provided for you in the pew. Thank you, Crossroads Choir. I guess that's what we call you, right? Crossroads Musicians. Thank you very much. What happy sounds all around us, and we are most blessed. Thank you for being here, and thank you for thinking hard about stewardship in this month. We have much to be grateful for. We have many open doors, and as we noted last week, it is expensive to be in a living church, and so we, uh, we focus this whole month every year on how we might invest uh, financially and otherwise into the life and health of this church where God has given us uh, incredible opportunities all around our city. You saw, you've seen some of those visual images last week and this week we'll see more. Praise the Lord for the work he's doing in our midst. And that is what Zechariah is calling the people of God to. We've studied Haggai last week and the week before. If you're new with us, we're studying these small books called the Minor Prophets toward the end of the Old Testament, uh, dated about 600, 700 years before Christ. And we noted that uh, in Judah's history, they were taken into exile into Babylon because they refused to put the Lord in the center of their lives. Or as Carrie said, they've refused to turn back to him. And so God pursued them in discipline in that exile in Babylon for 70 years. That, that exile is over. Uh, Persia conquered Babylon. And the Persian kings were more kindly disposed to Judah, even to the point of helping them pay for the rebuilding of their walls and of their temple. So they returned. Uh, they returned in 536 B.C., and they started building. They got some opposition and they gave up. They said, it's just not worth it. And so they put down their, their tools of building the temple of God, the church back in the center of their city. And they turned their attention to building their own homes. They built their own houses and they even decorated their houses. and They blended in with everybody around them. God came to them with the prophet Haggai, as we saw in those two chapters. And he said, uh, you need to turn back to doing what I called you to do. Uh, faith, uh, religion is not found in the building, but this is a tool to centering your priorities. And, and they repented and they started doing that. Haggai was used by God to get the people to start rebuilding the temple, rebuilding their church. They started doing the right thing. Zechariah comes to the same people just about the same time, maybe a couple years later. But God sent a second prophet to the same people about the same issue. It begins to impress on us the importance of gathering and giving to our place of worship. He sent Zechariah to rebuild the people. 
Not just to rebuild the building, but to rebuild the people. Because God didn't want them just to do what was outwardly, what he was outwardly calling them to. He wanted their hearts. So Zechariah follows on the heels of Haggai, calling us not just to do the right thing, but to turn to the Lord with all of our hearts that we might be vessels in his hands, that we might be tools that come readily to his hand, that we might do all his will in a way that praises his glorious grace. So we begin reading in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, remember that's the king of Persia, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Idu. It means he was was a priest. He was of a line of priests. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Don't be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded, my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderful things in this portion of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ spoken even hundreds of years before his birth. And may this good news draw us, may the kindness of God draw us to repent with our whole hearts, to turn back to you, that you might have all of us and that you might do with us your holy will in a way that gets a name for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said together, amen. About 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, Lance Armstrong was forced to admit that he had been doping. This greatest cyclist of all time had been uh, doping his blood to give him an edge in his uh, performance, to enhance his performance. He had denied it for years. He had encouraged other people to do the same. And anybody who attempted to speak the truth, to tell the truth, he sued and harassed until they quit. Eventually, he had to come clean because the, the evidence was undeniable. He had to admit what he had been doing. So then he went on an apology tour. Uh, Esquire magazine 
about the same time this was occurring, called it uh, Lance Armstrong's Purgatory. He went on an apology tour. He, he went to uh, Oprah Winfrey's show and apologized. And then he went to Filippo Simeone, the, the famous cyclist in Rome, and later to Christophe Besson, the famous uh, cyclist of France. He met him in Paris, and he apologized to these men that, that he had put them at a disadvantage by his illegal doping. But then he said to the person who was interviewing, he said, it's so hard. People are not accepting my apology. If I, he said, if I had seen my son doing the same thing today, I would be livid. But this has gone so far. I'm not sure if I have any control over restoring my reputation. Lance Armstrong's purgatory. Maybe you can identify with that to a degree. There are times you make, you've, you've sinned, you've made mistakes, and you, you are trying to find forgiveness. But maybe you're trying to find it in your own resources. You're trying to do enough to make up for it, and it's just not working. And when it doesn't work, when it doesn't work, quote unquote, then you may resort to other means, maybe blaming other people, maybe blaming your genetics, blaming your culture, or somehow reimagining what you did and calling it something different. Sad truth is Lance Armstrong has resorted to that. Just a few months ago, he started a podcast. And uh, he advertises the podcast as, as uh, a, a series of really hard conversations that, that uh, no one else has the courage to engage in. And he is fearless, he says. He's been made fearless because he knows other people are so afraid of being fired or shamed or canceled. And because he says he was canceled, he has the courage to have these hard conversations. Instead of apologizing anymore for the mistakes he made, he has recast it as I was canceled. I was, I was given an unfair hearing. People didn't accept me. So now I'm going to give other people the opportunity to find the redemption that I did not have. And we have to be careful not to judge unbelievers. Lance Armstrong is not a believer in Jesus Christ. He doesn't know the good news of the gospel. All he has is the, is the culture's gospel, that if you make a, so do something wrong, you have to fix it. And it's dependent on other people accepting you, whether it is repaired or not. He doesn't know that good news. We pray for him to know it. But he does illustrate at times even what Christians can do in failing to repent. 
in refusing to call sin what God calls it. To call disobedience what God calls it. Instead of mitigating it by comparing it and contrasting it to what other people do, taking full ownership of it and turning from it with our whole heart back to the Savior. In Zechariah, we will see Jesus more clearly than we've seen him in any of the minor prophets so far. And we've seen him in every minor prophet because the whole Bible is about Jesus. In Zechariah, we'll especially see him. And it begins in these early verses by turning with our whole heart back to the Redeemer, the redeeming God manifested in Jesus Christ. There's several things that we need to know in turning back with our whole heart to Christ, our Redeemer. The first is the urgency of it. The urgency of turning from sin, whatever it is, we have to understand as we, as Zechariah makes us aware that God is angry with sin. Sin angers God. See in verse two, the Lord was very angry with your forefathers. What did they do? What did they do that was so bad? Did they sacrifice children? No, not like the others around them did. Was it gross sexual sin? No, it wasn't. What was the sin that angered him? It was not putting him first in their lives. And it was manifested in the the lackadaisical approach they had to worship. It was manifested in their lack of concern for the poor and the vulnerable around them. God says, I was very angry. God is very angry with sin. He hates sin. So he says in Proverbs 6, 16, six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. Yes, hands that shed innocent blood, that's easy enough to figure out, but also haughty eyes and a lying tongue and those who stir up dissension among their brothers. God says he hates those sins. God says he is angry at sin every day. Psalm 7, 11. That as long as our hearts are not, do not belong to him, he is, we are at as enemies with him, Colossians 1, 21. And so the Bible says that because God is angry with sin, his anger had to be satisfied. We've been learning about that in our series in the evenings on 1 John, that big word propitiated, that Jesus had to propitiate, had to satisfy God's wrath against sin. The reformers call, he used a Latin phrase for that, iram dei placare, his wrath had to be satisfied. So on the cross, Jesus taking up our sins, though he had none of his own, went to the cross willingly, made himself the victim of God's judgment, and God hurled his wrath at our sin at Jesus. He caught it and satisfied it, and it is satisfied for any who find their refuge in him, but only if you find your refuge in him. Now, knowing that grace and knowing what God does to satisfy wrath, even at the cost of his own son, explains how God could be so angry with his people when they ignore 
what he has done for them. Later in, in uh, chapter 3, we'll read about this, this vision of the substitutionary atonement of Christ by his vision of J- uh, Joshua, the, the priest. And God says, when you turn to my Messiah, chapter 3, verse 10, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So much grace will be poured out on you. Chapter four, verse six, he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. These and many other gracious promises, the promises of his mercy. And he says, this is what makes me so angry. When people look especially at my grace that is offered and sin regardless. What does he do about it? If you belong to him, the Bible says, he disciplines you. That is, if you belong to the Lord, you're his child, you've come to Christ, and you persist in sin. And God says he is such a good father that he disciplines us. It's never vague. It's not vague guilt. He didn't like that. You'll know exactly why he's pursuing you but he pursues you. And he says, not this way, not, but that way. And sometimes he practices severe mercies in our lives to turn us back to himself. It may be painful at the moment, but he does it because he loves us. And you you should be comforted that he's disciplining you rather than letting you go on in that. The real fearful thing is if you persist in your sin and in your rebellion, and you know what it is because you're made in the image of God, even if you haven't given your life to Christ, you know what that rebellion is and you persist in it and God never disciplines you. That's a frightening thing. So the the first important thing you must know is the urgency of turning back to back to Christ with your whole heart. He pushes in a little harder. We can't can't leave this before we go to the next point. That part of repentance, he says, is calling sin, sin in your forefathers. You notice how he starts the whole the whole message this way. I was very angry with your forefathers. And he mentions the fathers again. Verse five, your fathers, where are they? The word of God continues to persist. Your fathers have not. Your, the word, God's faithful word outlasts your forefathers. Now that, that call to think honestly about our forefathers unnerves some people. Some people say you can't talk about the sins of the forefathers because that's what's called generational guilt. I never knew what generational guilt was before uh, somebody accused me of preaching it. But uh, we don't preach generational guilt because the Bible doesn't. We have a whole chapter in the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 18, about individual responsibility. He, he goes on for the whole chapter to say, if your fathers are, have, are righteous, were righteous, and you sin, their righteousness will not cover over your sin. You're responsible for your sin. And if your father sinned 
and you turn from that to righteousness, you won't be punished for your father's sins. You will, you will be in a righteous relationship with God. One generation is not punished or judged for the previous one's sin, nor is the next generation exonerated for by the previous generation's righteousness. So what is he after if he's not trying to make them feel guilty, not charging them with guilt, what is he doing? He's as a father saying, but let's be realistic. You may have learned, you have learned certain patterns from your forefathers. No one taught you how to sin. You inherited it somehow genetically. Each one of us becomes a sinner. We inherited it ultimately from Adam. And then there are examples that we have in our forefathers that are positive, yes, and they are negative. And unless we are honest and say, that was sin, we'll never be able to stop. We won't stop its repetition in the next generation. We'll go on and repeat it. We need to teach our children we teach our children how to honor their father and mother, how to honor them appropriately. Yes, calling out what they did well and what by God's grace they did well, but also saying, and this is where they did not walk in the way of the Lord. And we, by living in repentance before the Lord, will live a different way. So God says, look, it appears that maybe these people have, have flagged in their energy and rebuilding the temple. And he said, look, I'm warning you, you're just like your fathers. This is their tendency. Anything, anytime something went, got hard, they quit. Or here was their tendency. They wanted to blend in with everybody else. Here was their tendency. They were, they were prone to selfishness. Now, they repented. And so I want you to remember their, your fathers. I want you to remember these tendencies that are in your fathers. And I also want you to remember what I did when they repented. You know, I think one of the greatest gifts my father gave to me, there are many. I think one of the greatest gifts my father gave to me was when I saw him come become a Christian. He changed from being someone who insisted on self-justification. He became a humble, repentant person. Now before, he was the first to justify himself. Defensive. Pasted over the ways of his forefathers. But when he became a Christian... And he understood that Jesus died for all his sins and took his judgment away. Then he was able to look very intently, intensely at everything that he did and all of his motives. At times I thought he might have even had an oversensitive conscience. He would, he would listen to a sermon of mine or to his pastor and he would look hard at his life. And then he would look hard at what he had, what the, the patterns he had observed in previous generations. He looked back over his life and then he would call those out to me, call me on the phone or when we lived next to each other, he would tell me in person. And I saw him on many a day go home and write a note apologizing to somebody or, or, 
or take up the phone and doing the same or making sure I understood where he and my forefathers had gone astray in certain areas and that we must not do the same. No, he didn't, he didn't bring into disrepute his forefathers and his foremothers. He, he lifted them up appropriately where it was appropriate, but he also repented of where they were wrong. His heart made remain soft. And it's still a challenge to me to live that energetically and proactively looking for any place where my heart is askew or out of line with where the Lord calls us to be. It's like that person in the Old Testament looking for leaven in their house, the representative of sin. They would, in the Passover feast, they're going all around their house symbolically saying, wherever sin is hiding, I'm going to, I'm going to root it out and bring it into the light. Here's what we see God calling these people to. It's urgent. It's an urgent matter. Not just because God is a holy God, but because God is a loving Father. And His grace is so magnificent. There is no reason to live in the delusion of self-justification. Come clean with it all before the Lord. And then that takes us to the next point very easily. But the second thing we have to know about turning with our whole hearts back to the Lord is the characteristics, the characteristics of good repentance. Why is it important to know these characteristics? Because as you know, in any interpersonal relationship, it's important to know the characteristics of a good apology. You know, if you're at a, at a ball game and somebody dumps a beer down your back, and they say, sorry, dude, just doesn't work, does it? Well, more egregiously, suppose they run a stop sign and hit your car and kill your child and say, I didn't mean to do that. The characteristics of a good apology that we feel intuitively as human beings, we get because we're made in the image of God and they are to be characteristics of the way we repent to the Lord. Someone who's really helped me with this is a man named Aaron Lazari, who at one time, I don't know if he still is, is chancellor of the medical school, University of Massachusetts. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but his book has a lot of wisdom that helps give great insight into interpersonal relationships as well as, as well as living repentantly before the Lord. And he names the characteristics, his book is called On Apology. The whole book is about apology. And he said there are four characteristics of a good apology. It's acknowledgement, it's sorrow, it's, um, it's explanation, and then reparation or repairing what you've broken. And uh, he gives uh, many examples of good apologies and some hilariously bad apologies. I'll leave the, you to read those. But let me read you some excerpts of one that he says is a good apology. Written by a man named Eddie to his childhood friend about an incident that occurred 61 years before. 
And this man, as he's going back through his life, I don't know if he had become a Christian or what, but his conscience had become sensitive to what he had done 61 years before. Dear Eddie, he says, this is a letter of apology for an event that took place about 60 years ago. It's only been recently. I decided to write this letter, but thoughts about the event have been with me now and then since it occurred. I can see you standing on your rear porch facing a ring of boys, forming a crescent and facing you, shouting at you. I don't remember their words, but the meaning they carried had to do with your being a sissy because you threw a ball in the way a girl would. I was within the crescent. But I don't know if I was saying anything. I was stuck there and did not want to be there. Finally, I advanced towards you and you said something like, You knew I would come and stand by you. But I did not stand by you. My vocal cords were paralyzed. I was struggling with the task of choosing between my two allegiances. I backed away from you and rejoined the other kids. My insides were churning and I remained there in the street forever. My memory has not allowed me to recall what took place in the days that followed that incident. Even though I know that time passed and our friendship was rekindled, that scene was revisited to me at various times over the years. When you called me on the phone back in the 70s and asked me to think back to our Dorchester days together, I was truly happy to hear your voice, even happier later to see you. In the faraway corner of my mind, I couldn't help but see what I did to you, the pain I inflicted on you by not speaking up for you. I apologize for my behavior on Wildwood Street. Though I wanted to say these words to you, I felt I couldn't. The typing has been very difficult, your loving friend. Acknowledgement, sorrow, explanation, repair. God is a person. He wants to be approached in the same way. Rapidly, the third point is this. The one we hear every week. We must know, turning with our whole heart to the Lord... That no matter how long it's taken us to drift away, no matter how many things we've done, no matter how long it's taken us to engage in this rebellion, returning to him is instantaneous. As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, they said, so he has dealt with us. They repented. And every indication is the Lord received them back immediately. Later we'll learn through the visions of Zechariah that this return, this forgiveness comes at infinite cost to the Lord with the blood of his sacrifice and atonement. There's a very vivid illustration of God accepting that atonement in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a, a day of atonement. You read about it in Leviticus 17. And on that day, the high priest would take two goats. 
He would kill one, take its blood into the Holy of Holies and pour it on the altar. You've heard me talk about this before. The other one, he would symbolically place his hands on that goat and and convey all the sins of the people they were confessing. And then he he would shoo that goat away and that scapegoat vividly would take away the sins of the people. But they couldn't be convinced that their sins were forgiven until some other very dramatic display occurred. And that was with the the high priest going into the Holy of Holies with the blood of that slain goat. And he put it on to the mercy seat. And God symbolically looked at the people referenced uh, in reference to the laws in the Ark of the Covenant. And he couldn't see them except through that blood. If for some reason the high priest had messed up that sacrifice, not done what God had told him to do, God would kill him. They had little bells on the end of his robe, and when they quit tinkling, they had a rope tied on his ankle. If he fell dead, they would just drag him out. But if the sacrifice was accepted, and God said they were forgiven, here was the indication the high priest would come out from behind that thick curtain and he would hold up his hands and give a benediction. The one in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you his peace. And the people, because the priest was alive, And because the priest lifted his hands and pronounced blessing, they knew that their sins were taken away. They would not be judged. Do you know in the Middle Ages, that benediction, the benediction we often give from the front here, it was taken away by the church. I guess they figured that people won't understand it in Latin anyway, or how can we be sure that people that people have repented and so they quit doing it. And one of the first things that the reformers did when they reformed the church was restore the benediction into a worship service to convey to the people week after week after week, your high priest has emerged from the Holy of Holies. The sacrifice himself came back to life and tore that curtain in two. And before he ascended to heaven in Luke 24, he lifted up his hands and he blessed his apostles. He said, the sacrifice has been accepted. That is something you're blessed to experience in a corporate worship service every week. When we go through the divine drama of being called to the gospel, repenting of our sins, Receiving forgiveness, responding in gratitude, hearing his instruction. The pastor is Christ's representative raising his hands and saying, the sacrifice has been accepted. Go in response to that grace and live in full obedience to him. It's all experienced week after week in this very place. Thanks be to God for his blessings to us. Make it corporate worship, our priority. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask.
that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to look very honestly into our lives, into our hearts, and to submit to you every place where they're askew from your will. Never in self-justification, never in defensiveness, but eager to repent, to turn back to you and say, take all of me, Lord Jesus. Make me a pure vessel of grace reflecting the beauty of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said, amen.